Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sophie. Welcome to A TARDIS of One's Own. A queer feminist journey through time and space and new who. Hi, Sophie. Hello. <laughs> what a week. Ah, uh, yeah. It's not been a great week for women, if we're honest. No. We had some chats this week about how we're feeling, and I think my assessment of myself was just a heavy heart, and I know you said that you're... Yeah, soul-weary. You know, we had such a good time on Friday, we had Matariki, the vibes were so good, and then we wake up on Saturday, and the United States has just ruined all her good vibes, which, you know, I'm not into, and my friend texted me, and she's like, do you want to come over for a walk? I'm like, I don't know, I'm so depressed. Yeah. But I did go over for a walk. But yeah, it's just the soul-weariness that... Women in the U.S. have gone back like 50 years. Like their Women now have less rights there than their grandmothers did, which is so messed up. Yeah, it is. And, and I, it's scary as well as being like, I feel just like weirdly um, powerless. I can't do anything about it. I can, you know, do my best to be aware and, and uh, you know, be informed in terms of what activism I can do. But really, it's just, you know. Yeah. And everybody's at the whim of this. You know, you're in a democracy... That's the scary thing, right? It's like the yeah. idea that you can never take your rights for granted. Someone mm. can just come in and take them from you when they've decided, actually, we've had enough. Mm. And that and the progress can go backwards. Yeah, I think the Prime Minister put up an Instagram post where she said, you know, so many fights that women still have to have and we have to keep making progress, not having the same conversations and the same fights. And I think that's paraphrasing, but I think that yep. is very, very true. You've got a constant vigilance, right? You mm. can't rest on your laurels because someone will come for your rights. And so then in democracies like we're lucky to live in, you have to vote by who you think will act in accordance with what's important to you, right? Yeah, and look after the most vulnerable people. That's yeah, what yeah. I always think is 100%. important. Exactly, yeah. exactly don't, that. Don't vote yeah. for yourself, vote for the most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, so happy to be here as always. Happy to be doing the potty with you, but feeling like my energy has been low and also thinly spread this week. Yes, and the patience as a result, quite thin on yeah. my part. Oh, tolerance. Tolerance is low. Aligning with PMS as well, so... Always a fun time. An unholy storm of do not fuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, do you want to summarise our episode? Yeah, absolutely. So, this week, the TARDIS is drawn to an alien museum deep below the Utah desert, where a ruthless billionaire keeps prisoner the last of the Doctor's most fearsome enemies. I'm very intrigued because Big Tail Test... Oh, mate, no. I know. I think no. Because there are two no, women in this. two women in the entire episode. And they never talk to each other. No, they never talk to each other. No, okay, good. I was trying to remember if I misremembered that. but No, 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 no they don't. Because the woman at the end who ends up giving the nasty man his comeuppance, like, she, yeah, never ends up with, oh, oh, they're maybe. In, they're in that, that same... soldier who looks female with Rose when they're, like, trying to escape the Dalek and he's going up the stairs... And that soldier is there, and she's like, you go, I've got this, and like pointlessly empties an entire magazine at the Dalek. Yeah. Also, maybe. But does that count as a conversation, or is she just giving no. them No, and she's not, a, oh, oh, that soldier's not a named character. No. She is very much miscellaneous henchman, quick to die. And I do think that she, like, Rose is in the same room as the woman who ends up taking over at the end, but yeah. they... Never addressed, like she's never addressed. No, 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 she's very much a bit player in this, and very yeah. much sidelined in this. You know, they sent her off with Adam, kind of like mm. let the grown ups talk. You go, you guys go play with your toys. 
very gross vibes. So I think, yeah, yeah. big old fail on the big yeah, effect. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, and a very, a very low feminine energy episode, I would say. Yeah, high on the toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah. High on the dick swinging. <laughs> yeah, oh god. But it is actually one of the more critically well-regarded episodes of Who, held in quite high regard mm-hmm. in terms of a, a dramatic arc, was actually adapted from a radio play i think it was called jubilee for the sixth doctor the writer had written that and russell t davies really enjoyed that story so he sort of shoulder tapped him to kind of adapt it for the ninth doctor and take those same themes and play them out in this episode so yeah only episode the guy ever wrote was this one yeah cool i think overall episode thoughts i did enjoy it Mm. much better than last week's yeah shitty double slitheen though i would say that the dalek i mean again probably speaking to my mental state but i just found it sad it's very sad incredibly sad just so sad so yeah it was a bit of a downer on the vibes but it was good so discussion question Mm-hmm. What I thought of when I was watching this episode, there's this one particular scene where Rose is with Adam and he's talking at her about space stuff and alien tech. And she's just nodding along and smiling and acting like she doesn't know anything about space. And it made me think, hey, mansplaining, one for the ages. There's definitely an element here as well about women acting like they know less in order to seem appealing to men. But I think that's a whole other kettle of fish that maybe we'll tackle another time. So let's just focus on the old mansplaining. Now, technically, I sh- you could probably argue that it's not mansplaining what Adam does because he doesn't know that Rose has any idea what he's talking about. He just assumes that she doesn't. But he doesn't ask. He just... Yeah, no, I think that's mansplaining, mate. Like, it doesn't matter mm. whether they know or not. If anything... Yeah, no, no, because the point is that they assume. Yeah, it's the internal knowledge. Yeah. So I was thinking of Rebecca Solnit, who wrote that essay, Men Explains Things to Me, and that's also a book that she put together. Um, But in that essay, she writes, you know, every woman knows what I'm talking about. It's the presumption that makes it hard at times for any woman in any field. It keeps women from speaking up and from being heard when they dare that crushes young women into silence by indicating the way a harassment on the street does, that it's not their world. It trains us in self-doubt and self-limitation, just as it exercises men's unsupported overconfidence. And unsupported overconfidence is something that Adam has in spades. You know, I think it's it doesn't always have to be patronising or condescending. That doesn't need to be the, 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 the beginning point. It's just the assumption that I have information and you clearly cannot have it because you're just a fragile young woman. So therefore, I will talk at you and not ask you any questions at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes it makes it that particular version of the splaining harder uh, and less well received to call out. Because the guy can honestly, and this has happened to me, be like, oh, you know, I was just wanting to give you information. I was just wanting to help. Because they don't have a specific thing of like, oh, you know, let me patronize you. They actually do, in their own minds, just want to help you out by giving them the benefit of giving you the benefit of their knowledge. But it's just as annoying. I was reading a really interesting article um, last night called Mansplaining an Elocutionary Force, which is all about the idea, like exactly as you say, it's men actually misreading fundamentally women's vocal signals, their conversational signals. They're interpreting those signals completely differently. And it comes from an internal bias. When a woman speaks, they just hear something completely different to what the woman is saying. And the frustration comes from the woman is actually communicating just fine. Mm. The man is just not open to hearing it because they've already decided what they're going to hear. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so they end up holding court at you when you maybe just made a statement rather than asking a question. And they're like, here yep. is my 10-minute TED talk. That no, exactly. No oh, it's so frustrating. So Rebecca, so I read, yeah, that essay by Rebecca Sonnet and with a, a kind of an added in um, intro that she did to it in mm. 2012. And yeah, I remember from that, that anecdote of her experience, you know, she was staying away with some friends and there was a man that she didn't know and he ended up explaining to her her own book. But her friend was there and very quickly realised and her friend was like, that's her book. Mm. That's her book. Yeah. Multiple times before the man was like, what? Like, carry on talking because he's got this like narrative in his head of like, no, I am going to impart to you this wisdom mm. that's just entirely incongruous with reality to the point that he's not aware of it. And Twitter is full of examples of this, like people having their articles explained back to them, scientists. We love Dr. Eleanor, you know, she's always yeah. facing this on Twitter. And yet in this Elocutionary Force article, there is actually a line the woman talks about. Many mansplainers are likely entirely sincere and plausibly well-intentioned. They may deny that their conversational contribution were performed with any condescension. But when a mansplainer mansplains, a person with superior or commiserate expertise is treated in a way she ought not to be simply because she is a woman. This is problematic whether or not it's done in a patronizing way. So it's actually, yeah, intention is besides the point. It's the act that is problematic. Yeah, I totally agree. So I thought we could do something fun because I was also reading an article mansplaining by Kim Goodwin on BBC and it she did this amazing chart that to help people ex- yeah if you read yeah, it it's, yeah. I, have, I have the exact same notes i just yeah. love that chart so much like am i mansplaining and i think we might need to print it out yeah. for the office since i'm now in the passive aggressive note business after i did one today <laughs> i had to do a passive aggressive note for the snack shelf at our work because people kept moralizing food and i was having none of it today so food has no moral value stop talking about it i'm sick of hearing about it exactly. thank you <laughs> no yeah it's brilliant and the whole idea of having to <laughs> explain man's explaining two men uh-huh. just make, gives me such joy so I've, I've had just briefly I've had experiences of that when guys have been like oh well how do I even know what's mansplaining I, I'm just telling them something that you know that I just want them to know and it's like okay cool but do they want to know it did they did ask? you ask and if they're like oh what am I meant to ask before I tell them I mean like yeah before you like launch into a TED talk at them you weirdo like it's not like monologues yeah. right yeah. I have gotten into the habit of interrupting people where I'm like, I don't actually want to know this. I don't need to know this. Yeah. But, you know, that comes with its own baggage. When <laughs> <laughs> you're like, stop talking to me. <laughs> Please stop talking. I am begging you to stop talking. Although normally I just put it in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Because, yeah, because like you say, there's a cost and we want to be seen as amenable. So with this chart that she made, she said that, you know, she realized when she was come, trying to come up with it that the man's the splaining part comes down to three factors and she lists these three and I thought we could run old Adam old mate Adam's conversation with Rose through this so you know let's start with the first question do they want an explanation I would argue that Rose does not want the explanation she does not ask for information no he's like this is the alien stuff right yeah yeah and she's like cool because they we don't see the start of this conversation we sort of come into them when he's giving her this tour of the Mm. his workshop or whatever yeah but did she ask? Mm. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say he just assumed that she doesn't know anything and she's come to this museum, so he's just going to talk at her. Yeah. Hmm. Kim says, you know, unsolicited explanations may be fine within reason if you're someone's teacher or manager. Explaining after they've declined your help is almost always disrespectful. Conversation is a good place to start building the habit of consent, which I loved. I love the idea of conversation as a thing that requires consent. 
Because I think women, because of politeness that is drilled into us from a very early age, we often end up in conversations we don't want to be in and that we cannot Mm. extricate ourselves in. That goes beyond the normal kind of social norms of conversation and small talk. We just get trapped in conversations with annoying men on a daily basis. This literally happened to me on when we were on the Tuesday uh, with miscellaneous office man who shall remain nameless. I was in the kitchenette and was literally like going about my business, coming in like the SAS, just want to make a cup of tea and get out again as quickly as possible. I've got no habit. I don't want to chat with anyone. Random man comes in. I'm like, hey, to be polite. And he's like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, oh, good, thanks. How are you? And then I finish making my cup of tea, start exiting the kitchen, and he shouts, do you have anything good on the weekend? After me. At which point I'm like actively walking away. So then I have to turn around and be like, oh, yeah? But like my body language is very like turned around partly in partly out of the kitchen and i'm like yeah no it was fine um how about you because i feel obliged Mm -hmm. to and he was like oh yeah fine oh did you like watch any movie i went down this weird anecdote which apparently he'd misremembered that i had this particular interest in like niche film and this all that i'm trapped in this conversation that i didn't ask for that i obviously like with my body language had wanted to leave and yet he shouted a question at my back and we're not close friends or anything. We are mm. at best office acquaintances. Yeah. So I mean, like, maybe he's lonely. But I feel like he talks to a lot. I see, I see him talking to a lot of people. He's not short of conversation. No, it's interesting because, like, where do you draw the line between what is considered polite small talk and what is actually just inflicting your presence upon women? Because I think it's quite a thin line. I think women are more likely to get trapped in conversations, especially with men that they do not want to have or they have to pretend to be interested. Like, I have witnessed many women with glazed looks in their eyes in this building having conversations inane conversations with men you know not work conversations just inane conversations and yeah I feel like our workplace is particularly bad for trapping you in conversations when you're actually very clearly doing a thing and someone will just interrupt you you know making like making tea or whatever and like you say sometimes you're just very quickly trying to get in and out and then someone will try and waylay you and I'm like I don't want to have a conversation where I'm on my phone and I'm just quickly sending a message and someone will start talking to me and I'm just like no I'm clearly busy doing something I have a finite amount of time to do this task so I'm I can be quite short like the other day someone got out of the lift and was trying to talk to me and I was just like hi and just kept working and I didn't even look up because I'm like I can't engage with this right now but I don't know if that's necessarily a feminist issue but I, I suspect it might be yeah I feel I feel like, does this happen to guys? I mean, maybe we could do a poll Mm. amongst the men folk of the office. Because I feel like they don't talk to each other that much. All the ones that I do see talking to each other have some level of... Yeah, exactly. Like, they don't, like, randomly... Yeah. It's an age thing. It seems to be the older guys that do it more than the younger ones. Oh, I don't know. There's lots of layers. You're right, because I don't see the men making... Like, if it's just two randos from opposite ends of the office going into the kitchenette, they don't tend to chat. No. They're just like, hi, that's it. Yeah. But if you're a woman in there, suddenly they want to have a little deeper meaningful, which is not anything I'm inter- interested in doing with anyone. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, so Kim's second question is, are you making bad assumptions about competence? She's like, explaining things to knowledgeable people isn't just wasting everyone's time. You may, regardless of your intent, undermine them by implying you don't trust their competence or intelligence. Which is one of my major bugbears at work. Like, this is something that drives me absolutely wild when someone starts to explain things at me. And I'm like, why do you think I don't know this? Why do you not trust me to know this information? So I would say Adam is making bad assumptions about Rose. You know, he took one look at her, at her appearance, and he's like, she doesn't know anything about this. I'm going to explain to her. 
Yeah, 100%. But that's also very weird because they've randomly turned up very deep inside a completely, extremely private facility. Mm. And his first instinct isn't, well, if she's here, she's probably here for a reason. She hasn't just happened to prom here. Maybe she knows what's here. Maybe she has some alien knowledge. He's just like, miscellaneous woman, you must know nothing. Yeah, it is weird that he doesn't try to grill her for information about why she's there or how she got there, how they broke in. Like, sure, the doctor's been taken away for questioning. But also the idea that Rose isn't a threat, but they just, Mm. like, farm her out to this rando guy. She could be the brains of the operation. I know. It's very, like, it's infantilizing. I don't like it. And then her third question is, how does bias affect your interpretation of the above? So she says, both questions are complicated by sexism and other kinds of bias. We're all taught gender bias and behavior and communication from an early age, with boys and girls being criticized and praised for different behaviors in school. We all like to think we treat people fairly, but men often assume women are less competent and white people are likely to assume darker skin equals lower intelligence. So, yes. Intersectionality important here, but Mm -hmm. I mean, we are two white people talking to white people in this example but definitely there's things like you say like potentially even a classism angle here yeah he comes across as posh english mm-hmm. very well educated he brags about how smart he is and yep. you know his intellectual kudos and maybe thinks that rose is beneath him but also the way she acts like she doesn't call him out on it so she kind of goes along with it she's this sort of the metaphorical twirling of the hair bubble cum pop being like yeah tell me more you know which is fine that behavior is fine because the actual issue is that he doesn't he just assumes that based on that behavior she doesn't know anything that is the the fundamental problem is the assumption yeah it is and and i get your point there's definitely i made a note about like there's another layer here that she's maybe trying to keep secrets as well Mm, acting it's yeah acting more kind of passive or just like yeah because she doesn't want to reveal maybe too much but Mm -hmm. still like there's different ways and means of doing that and she's chosen the best way to do that in that situation was for her to just go really like demure and meek flirty yeah which to be fair is like rose's kind of default that's just it, her personality type but she, yeah yeah she's flirty with everyone she is very flirty which you know nothing wrong with that no not at all yeah it was the the note that men do this to other men too and people will use that as an excuse you know men get mansplained a lot and so women shouldn't take that as a an issue they should just adopt that which is just like why is the assumption that women should again masculinize themselves to fit in if it affects everyone then change the behavior don't go oh it happens to us too so we should accept it mm-hmm. and this is something i just think we should all recognize and if you are new to your feminism journey, then I think, you know, men explaining things to me is quite a good introductory thing. And also everyday sexism is quite a good one. Because at the end of the day, this has happened to all women. And I think this is the fundamental thing we have to keep in mind when we talk about sexism. Is we all have stories. We've all been sexually harassed. We've all been mansplained to. We've all had these things happen to us. And when people go, not all men but all women. So until it's not all women, I'm not interested in hearing, not all men, change the behaviour. Yeah, I totally agree. And if it's not you, statistically, it's somebody you know or probably related to. So what are you doing to call out that behaviour in your male friend groups, with your male family members? It's not good enough to just be like, it's not me. Yeah, and if you see things like this, even something that seems innocuous, like mansplaining, if you're in a meeting and someone is mansplaining to a woman who you know has the knowledge already, just interrupt them because she can't can't do it. She's already frustrated and in a weird power situation. There's a whole lot of social baggage to unpack there. Yep. You should just step in and be like, she knows this. Because it means more to that man doing it that it's coming from you than it does coming from her. Yeah, alas, but yes, exactly. Mm. And this is another thing that Kim says, you know, mansplaining may seem like a trivial issue in isolation, but how we communicate tells other people how much or how little they are valued. So, you know, people feel better and work more effectively and behave better when they feel valued. And if you're constantly talking 
looking at women, they feel like they don't have anything valuable to say, they get frustrated, and eventually they just stop contributing altogether, which is not a place you want to get to. No, and yeah, it is frustrating to be... Rebecca Solnit wrote that in, what, 2008? Mm, yeah. Yeah, and we're 14 years later. Still having the same conversations. And awareness of that concept with the label mansplaining, which came a bit after her work, it still doesn't matter. Apparently, self-awareness of it isn't enough to have, you know, got rid of it. Yeah. And some people will say that, you know, you shouldn't call it mansplaining, that, you know, sexism in reverse. But that is not a thing. You know, systemic sexism is a thing that primarily targets women. And yes, you know, feminism is for everyone. It will benefit men as well by recognising that the patriarchy hurts everyone. Toxic masculinity is a result of the patriarchy. So these things are issues that affect everyone. I know, and I agree. It's good to acknowledge kind of limitations or challenges and stuff. And I and I did, you know, read something around and think about this idea of gender essentialism is mm. ideal when you're like, this is a man thing, doing a man thing. But fuck it. Like, I think, you know, when you're at the point where things need to change, some generalizations are fine. <laughs> We know not every single man is mansplaining, but it's enough of a trend in our experience as women. Like, this isn't an isolated thing. It's enough yeah. of a trend to be like, hey, this is a thing that largely men do to largely women. And yeah, yeah. there's probably some women who do it to women. There's probably yeah. some women who do it to men. Like, whatever, it doesn't matter. The fact that it's a shared experience is enough. And yeah, if it needs, like, a bit of a catchy name to get at the awareness, then so fucking be it. Yeah, and I get that men also sometimes get a bit frustrated because they'll be accused of mansplaining when maybe they don't think they are, or that women are very short with them and they're like I was just trying to help but you also need to recognize that women are tired yeah all the women in me are tired because you know you might be the fourth or fifth man in that single day to mansplain to that woman and so she doesn't have the patience to educate you and it shouldn't fall on people who are already marginalized to educate anyone they don't owe you that no on Tuesday I got mansplained twice by the same man delightful yeah he is, like, I am aware of who this man is, and he is a serial mansplaining offender. But I know, I know if you called him out, his instant reaction, because I kind of did, in the second affair, I was, I gave a bit of a snarky back comment to it, and his instant reaction is like, sad eyes, and like, oh, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't. I'm just trying to help. And no, and you're like, oh. That also doesn't matter. If someone tells you that your behaviour has offended them or hurt them, especially, you know, mm. just saying that that wasn't your intent isn't actually good enough. You need to acknowledge that that person is hurt by your behaviour. So you got to own that. And it's uncomfortable, but got to listen and learn. And just take the opportunity for self-reflection, right? If yes. you're challenged on anything, anyone, everywhere, if someone, in, if you're doing a thing and someone is like, oh, hey, and challenges you, be like, mm, maybe, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Did I think the right things? Did I... But there's just no, I think a lot of the time there's just none of that self-reflection. It becomes a defense to be like, oh, but I was trying to help you rather than be like, hmm, what did I assume? Yeah, you just can't argue with people about how they feel. It's a pointless exercise. So if mm -hmm. someone tells you, hey, this is bothering me, it's no point arguing with them. Like, there's no point saying, but I didn't mean to bother you. Like, they're bothered. So just, that's, yeah. you just have to sit with that. There's nothing you can do. You can't argue with them about that. That's just how they feel. Feelings are just feelings. That's yeah. what they are. Big sigh. <laughs> Big sigh. So, like, it's so interesting. And I think that there's, I'm sure there's probably going to be other mansplainy bits of Doctor Who. And we can mm. come back to this. And there's definitely other aspects of this episode that I know we kind of briefly talked about that I think will come up in further ones that we can unpack then. Like, particularly the Doctor's trauma. Yeah. How the women around him, specifically Rose, have to deal with that. Yeah, that was originally going to be yeah. my question for the week. This idea of women having to carry and help men with their trauma. Like, that whole she is not your rehab movement. But honestly, after the events of the weekend, 
weekend I just felt so heavy that I could not bear to talk about men's trauma this week. I just didn't want to go there. Yeah, understandably. It will come up again. The Doctor obviously has a lot going on. And I think that is one of the strengths of this episode as well, is seeing him grapple with what he's done and how... He's suddenly confronted with the reality of that. You know, he's never really stopped because, as you said in a previous episode, he's just constantly moving, constantly going. He doesn't pause. But now this Dalek is calling him out on it. And he, because he's there, he has to think about it. And when that Dalek tells him, you know, you, you'd make a good Dalek, mm. it's a very powerful moment because suddenly he's confronted with his own shortcomings. Yeah, absolutely. I wrote, yeah, in my notes too, the doctor says, kill yourself. Effectively. Yeah. And the Dalek's like, you would make a good Dalek. Yeah. Yeah, Doctor is emotionally all over the place Mm. in this episode. Like, we get absolute glee when he realises that it's a Dalek that's trapped and powerless. Mm. Seconds after total panic because he thought he was about to get Dalek to death. All the way back round again to this kind of almost shut down trauma. It's a lot. And not always, you know, in a, I would say largely not in a particularly constructive way. Like, it's great to be emotional. It's great to process how you're feeling, but just comes across in kind of toxic ways. And he's, like we talked about earlier, one of the many toxic men in this episode, including the Dalek himself. Aww. Well, I mean, we is he a him? Like, we don't want to ge- do gender assumptions, but people yeah, maybe, talk about it as a him. Maybe they don't have gender. I don't know what the deal is with the Daleks. Maybe yeah. they're genderless. Yeah. Interesting. Shouldn't be assuming a pronoun then. Zero. Mm. They... Yeah, yeah. I think that the Doctor is unwilling to see how much of a, you know, when the, the Dalek says to him, like, you'd make a good Dalek, like, it made me think about how much the Dalek is actually being quite a mirror to him mm. in this episode. Like, Dalek's all alone after the Time Wars. Yeah. Doctor's all alone after the Time Wars. Like, both have a shit ton of trauma, both are processing it badly, both are using anger. Both are the last of their species, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's something really powerful in that, in that mirroring and the idea that in the end the Dalek is changing. He's showing changes of behaviour because of this absorption of Rose's DNA in a way, right? So he's getting this empathy, which is gendered, you know, that the, it's through connection with a woman that the Dalek learns to love. softer. And then the Dalek is changing and then I love that moment when the Doctor comes charging out with the gun and Rose says, you know, he's not the one, or they're not the one pointing the gun at me. They're changing and what are you changing into? Which is such a good, powerful moment. And the Doctor in that moment, you know, Christopher Eccleston again, amazing acting, that moment when he's just dropping the gun and he's like, I didn't, I wouldn't. But he has, you know, he did. He murdered an entire species, including his own. Yep. Exactly. And we don't know how or what like that happened, but that's basically the gist of it, right? Yeah. And then for the Doctor, him becoming what he most hates. Mm. Yeah, and this constant moving, this constant adventuring through time and space and not having maybe the ability or the want to process anything, all of that. And like you say, like being forced to in this episode. Yeah, and I mean, it's not subtle about it. There's that whole line when the Doctor's explaining what the Daleks are like, and they're like, you know, because it honestly believes other species should die. They're different and anything different is wrong. But the Doctor also believes that the Daleks should die, right? And when the Dalek is grilling the Doctor and he says, you know, but you survived, and the Doctor says, but not by choice. Mm. Which is, there's a whole, like, survivor guilt element going on here. The whole thing is, it's dark, you know? Yeah, it is. But you totally agree. It's one of my standout moments, but I've got other ones, so I'll do those ones later. But about Christopher Eckersall's acting. Mm. He's so good. He's really powerful in this. But to the point where it's like sticks out. Because he's so much better than everyone else. Yeah, or just like doing really serious acting. And then there's like the Dalek 
which Okay, so this is one of my random observations, but it's unfortunate that back in like the 60s or whenever, the BBC's costume department in like 1965 has dictated the Cyberman and the Dalek for forever because it literally looks like a plumber has gone to a fancy dress costume and been like, what can I do with some pipes and a plunger? And we have to be like, <gasps> total and serious fear at this thing that's like, I have a whisk and a plunger. But it's interesting because one of the main goals of Robert Shearman when he wrote this was to make this thing that is kind of a joke and that was mm. kind of a running joke because no one really took the Dalek seriously anymore to give them some sense of weight and to add fear back into it. So they joke about, oh, foiled by some stairs and the Dalek starts to levitate. Like this is all about really implementing that that fear and the fact that the Dalek has this force field and it can withstand all these things. Like, yes, it looks ridiculous. Yeah. But it, it can actually do serious damage. I think they do and they do get that across quite well like it comes across as scary even though at the beginning of like which no is... yeah I mean my mum used to say when I was growing up because until 2005 I didn't have a Dalek of our generation but my mum had Doctor Who when she was young mm-hmm. and she said that she would literally hide behind the sofa because yeah. she was scared of the Dalek and the Cyberman you hear a lot of stories about Doctor Who mm. from kids right you know, I, I watched these episodes a bit further in advance than you because I have to give you the disc because we live in 2005, apparently. And they, yeah, the one I watched last night, I was like, I remember being terrified watching this. Like, obviously now I know what happened, so it doesn't scare me anymore. But I remember at the time I was genuinely scared. Oh, I'm going to lose my shit, mate. I can't even remember what comes. I'm, so, I'm such a scaredy cat. Yeah, and I think, you know, that point about us not taking the Dalek necessarily seriously when you first see it is mirrored by Van Staten, right? Because he's just like, he's chained it up and the Doctor's telling him to destroy it. He's being so earnest about it, like, you cannot let this thing get out. And he's just like, yeah, make it talk to me. And they just go ahead and torture this thing and lets it scream, which is sad. Like, even though this is a a killing machine, hearing that screaming is still horrible. Like, Mm -hmm. torture is horrible. Yeah. It's like visceral. No, I really do not like that man. In my notes, I abbreviated him to AA, which stands for American Asshole. Fair enough. Because every time he talks, so annoying. Mm. And I think one of the few actual Americans in this show, Mm. because the woman who is being his American assistant, I'm 99% sure is not American, and her accent is bizarre. (laughs) Kind of like sails across the Atlantic between British and American. And Interesting that this whole concept of we got the internet because of alien tech. He owns the internet. It's Elon Musk. He thankfully does not own the internet. Yeah. But you can see him behaving like this. Yeah, and how horrible Van Staden is about human life. You know, when all those people are dying and being killed by the Dalek, he just says they're dispensable. The Dalek is unique and I don't want to scratch on its bodywork. Like, horrible. So that he can lock these things in this museum that no one else presumably sees. It's not a museum open to the public. It's no, just no, no, not him. at all. Yeah. It doesn't exist. It's like a black site, right? So yeah. yeah, and like deep underground, like as the doctor says, you know, you want to get close to the stars, but you're about as far away from the stars as you can get. I know. And this idea of like, if you're a rich, privileged man, White you man. can, yeah, you can own whatever you want and take that away from everyone else. Okay, so I have some other random observations, but maybe a bit of a lighter tone. Yeah, go for it. Metaltron. Metaltron. <laughs> it's like, I've named it the Metaltron. Which is like a Transformers villain, you know? Literally is, <laughs> yeah. Ooh. A bad wolf helicopter mm. just dropped in there. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. Well spotted. Yeah. And not just generally this whole, we're shooting guns at the Dalek. We're going to keep doing it, even though it has literally no impact. So you get like 20 Americans, soldiers, just like, bam, bam, bam. And the Dalek's like, 
Okay. <laughs> like emptying clip after clip. Which reminds me, I love that moment when the Daleks suddenly start spinning around and it's bodywork. It's like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> yeah, now you can't surround it. So good luck with that. It seems like peak US behavior, though, let's be real. You know, with this kind of gun culture. Kind of feels like the kind of thing that would happen. Yes. Americans with guns. Attempting to kill things with guns. Yep. Oh, and as it ended, but that's not the end of Adam. No, so Adam gets on the TARDIS. We get another episode with him. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And that was an interesting interchange as well when she's like, come on, he's always wanted to see the stars. And the Doctor's like, oh. Yeah, it's interesting that I don't know why Rose wants to take him along. Like, obviously she thinks he's cute, but other than that, what's the motivation? He's not interesting. He's not really contributed anything. No, it's like... You know, a bit of a lost puppy thing. I don't know that she wants to like... Maybe she just, from a non-cynical perspective, she's just like, this is amazing. I want to share it with someone who I feel will really appreciate it. Someone I can connect with on a more human level who is, you know, from the same country as me, roughly the same age as I am. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Rather than it just being kind of like shoehorned in so that we get some fresh meat for the uh, next episode. <laughs> like We didn't even talk about the fact that there's legit a moment here where you think Rose has died because she gets locked on the other side of that door. Because of the doctor. Yeah, I know. I mean, do we think that? I think it's still very like, they're obviously not going to kill Rose. You know, when, when... Halfway through a season. Exactly. Like, when it's a main character, it's halfway through a season. I always get annoyed when writers do this because it's, like, unnecessarily, like... Although, if you were watching it at the time, you could have believed the bait and switch because Adam's there, right? So you could think they're going to kill Rose and put Adam in the TARDIS. Like, there's another yeah. companion there for the taking. But obviously we know she's there for three seasons. Two yeah. seasons. Two seasons. Mm. But... That's a, that's a classic dilemma for the Doctor, right? So he has to decide, do I save the world because I genuinely believe the Dalek will go ahead and kill the entire human race or do I save my companion? And he makes the same decision as he did back in the Time War. Do I save my own people or do I kill these other, you know, horrible killing machines? And he chose to destroy the Daleks and his own people. So he, he basically makes the same decision but on a much smaller scale. And then when he has to do it again, when he realises Rose is still alive, he's like, nah. I do think it's interesting that the Dalek is like, this is not life, this is sickness. I cannot be like this. You know, he'd rather be dead than feeling. Like, feelings, no thank you, none for me. I would rather die. It's pretty extreme. Kill me! Kill me! Give me orders. Yeah. But yes, to summarise, when Rose says, blimey, you can smell the testosterone, she's not kidding. That's just the tagline of this episode. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it really is. Okay, well, maybe we segue seamlessly to standout moments. Mm-hmm. What do you have? So I went with the bit where the Doctor actually talks to the Dalek and he says, you know, kill yourself, rid the universe of your filth, why don't you just die? And the Dalek says, you would make a good Dalek. Which I had a keychain at the time when you pressed it, it would say that with all my car keys. <laughs> oh, funny. I actually just think it's so powerful, the Doctor's horror at becoming what he fought against, like without even realising that it's happened to him. And when he hears that line, you can see it in Christopher Eccleston's amazing acting, that he's really feeling that, right? He's never thought about it. And the way that hate consumes people, even people with good intentions, even with people who believe they're doing it for the right reason, hate is a poison. You know, there's that whole thing about I think it's a Buddhist saying that trying to get revenge on people is like drinking poison and expecting it to poison the other person. That's kind of what you're seeing here. It's just a phenomenal storytelling moment of holding up a mirror to someone, holding up a mirror to a character and really forcing them to confront what they're doing and what they're becoming. And, you know, we've seen the Doctor be really reckless and be really kind of dismissive of life up until this point. Like, he's been, you know, storming around, and I think this is a real turning moment for him to go, I need to grapple with this thing that I've done. I need to grapple with what it has made me into. 
I just think, yeah, it's a phenomenal piece of storytelling. It's a great piece of writing. I do think the episode is, you know, it's very masculine energy, you know. But it does have some really strong, dramatic moments that Christopher Eccleston really delivers. So, yeah, that's my standout moment. Yeah, awesome. How about you? So I really love how Daleks narrate their actions. (laughs) Elevate. Elevate. So funny. It's so brilliant. Yeah, it's just like... And they've kept it because that's like the way that the Dalek talks. Like everyone knows the Dalek's voice, right? Like they've kept that particular essential tone. And I loved when he elevated up the stairs. Yeah, great. Because you're like, ha ha ha, forward by stairs. And he's like, nope, some budget 2005 CGI. <laughs> I know, so bad. <laughs> you can get up those stairs. It's also great when people call it, specifically call it in this episode, a pepper pot. I'm like, great, love that. I thought it was cool at the end when he gets ordered to kill himself, how they make the side dot bits, mm. the, the, the nubbles, come out and like made that circular kind of knit around it. Yeah, yeah that yeah, was quite yeah. well executed. Yeah, mm. it was just interesting. The CGI on the so, Dalek like, itself was quite good too, because that is gross. Dude, I think it's animatronics. I think that's why it's so good. It's because it's not CGI. It's actually like a, a gooey puppet. Properly gross. Yeah. So it's like literally a puppet that they've slimed up because there's, and then they've maybe got like an animatronic eye, but you know, like OG Star Wars, like everything's just puppets because they can't do the, yeah, like the Muppets, Muppet puppets. (laughs) I'd forgotten as well that you actually saw the Dalek inside in this episode as well. So I was like, oh yeah, that's gross. This little tentacle always gets me. And the little tentacle. Yeah. Also like the idea and I like it when sci-fi challenges this, that a species might go to the point where they're like, we're genetically engineering like the best thing and it's not hominid in form. Mm. It's not bipedal, you know, it's like kind of octopus adjacent. Yeah. Because we're so like, we've engineered the master race and it's like essentially just a futuristic looking human. Yeah. Normally in sci-fi, right? They're really tall and strong and a little bit like Aryan problematic. But yeah, I like that. I like being like... Kind of just like a brain. A gooey brain with some tentacles. And they've engineered this maximally powerful vessel for it Mm. to like do max damage in. I like it. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted your stand-up No, 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 it's good. That was was basically it. Yeah, I had my stand-up moments were Chris E acting, lots of serious emoting. Because he's doing lots of serious emoting. And yeah, and the whole Dalek, you know what Dalek's going to do because it will tell you whilst Mm -hmm. it's doing it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. The the acting does stand out because contrasted to Van Staten and stuff, it just no, it's on he's a different like, level. Yeah, and also Van Staten, like he's almost like pastiche of a bad guy. Yeah, fighting here. And I do, I do, do think Billy Piper's a good actress as well. I think that it's easy now to be like, yeah, she's great, and not even think about it because we've had. 17 years of her being amazing and everything, all the stuff that she's done since. But literally then, like, everybody just knew her as a teen British pop star. And she's like 23 or something. She's playing a 19 year old, but she's like 23. Like, mm. that is so young. And she's doing a great job too. Especially because she keeps nearly, she keeps having to act nearly dying. Yeah. And every I've, episode. What I've noticed is there's a lot of her pressed up against doors because she's been locked in a room and stuff. And I don't know if this is intentional, but obviously when we get to the end of season two, spoilers, and she's separated from the doctor, like what we think is permanently separated mm. from him. There's that moment where Tennant is pressed up against the wall and she's pressed up against the other wall and it's like really moving mm. and emotive. Why is she always in this position? Is this foreshadowing of her I mean, inevitable maybe? separation from the doctor? 
know, something to watch for how often that happens to her. Yeah, or kind of parallels between she felt like she was trapped in this mediocre normal life and she actually ends up being trapped in in sci-fi things instead. Yeah, true. Or is it, you know, on a very superficial level, just a great way to add tension, which is trapping people in places. Well, when she says in this episode, when she's trapped on the other side and she's like, oh, sorry, I was a bit slow. Like, she's trying to make it her fault, saying to the doctor, don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. Yeah, I thought it was unfortunate editing in that scene when just before she was getting to the door, we see her running and it's obviously just like a random clip of her running, but she's doing a really neutral face, not like a uh, anguished, like, can see the closing door. It's just like neutral running face. And then you cut to... Adam, Indiana Jonesing under the mm. gap, and then we cut away, and we don't know if she made it or not. But like her face was too neutral. I think they they put in the wrong clip. They like, should have mm. got her to just do a running bit with. I mean, everyone like running on film is always super awkward. You're either like just like a weird, awkward normal runner with no sense of urgency, or you're like the Tom Cruise. Like I've spent 25 years training this specific <laughs> tough man run. run. Yeah, which everyone can like. This is a hand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Blame we hands. can't. This is this is a audio medium, so you but can't we're see both us. Do we get though? We're like efficient arms i am a robot (laughs) army man yeah um and then she says you know i wouldn't have changed it for the world a bold call i don't know if i would feel that way in her position nothing so far has been particularly amazing and it's not i mean maybe this is a great question maybe there's periods of time that elapse in their world between and so we've just as far away as concerned they've been hanging out for like four days but Maybe that's been a lot longer. No, no, because, yeah. yeah. I think canonically they do have other adventures that we don't see because sometimes they'll refer to those adventures like off screen. Remember when we did that thing or when we went there or did this? Yeah, so. okay, cool. So they have had time to, I mean, build a bond, for want of a better word. Like, yeah. building a bond with the doctor at this point. Is but a bit... everything we've seen Rose do so far has been fairly traumatic. So yeah. she's like, oh, I would miss this, constantly almost dying. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> And on that note... Yeah, yeah, on that note. (laughs) Um, Cool, okay, I think this is good. So we've had a bit of an interesting run with last week's double episode that we did not like and trying to find the positives in that. And then this week having emotionally, personally a rough week Mm. and then a sad episode. And again, trying to, to kind of work through that, so... Yeah, so next week should be interesting. So we're discussing episode seven, The Long Game, which has got Simon Pegg in it. So, you know... Oh, yeah! Yeah. Futuristic one doesn't take place on Earth, so that'll be a nice change of pace for us. Yeah, absolutely. And this is before Simon Pegg got Hollywood famous. Correct, yeah. But it was just like him and Nick Frost doing funny things. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. OG sci-fi fans. Was Simon it probably Pegg. around, like... Shaun of the Dead? I think it might even... Maybe a couple years before? Maybe, yeah. I can't remember when Shaun of the Dead came out. Maybe well, it coincides. We'll Google. Oh, yeah, and he's like a weird colour or something. Mm. Yeah, yeah, cool. Cool, yeah. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, that wraps us up for this week. Let us know your thoughts by emailing own at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram. You can check out the show notes for links and for all the references discussed in this episode. And we will see you next week. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.